God, thank you so much for your word and the care that uh, you provide as our good shepherd. You've given us more blessings than we know to thank you for and uh, certainly more than we're aware of uh, now. God, we thank you for your care for your church and especially through your word. What a treasure that we don't even realize we hold uh, to have access to your thoughts, to be able to know your mind and to be able to experience the sanctifying power of your voice uh, at work in our lives uh, moment by moment. God, as we again turn our attention to this precious doctrine of sanctification, we pray that you would use our study of these things to bring yourself glory, to make us look more like your son, and God, that that would only fuel us to greater zeal for your name and a greater love and care for one another, something that's otherworldly, for which there is no other explanation than your kindness, uh, your undeserved, um, or yeah, your undeserved uh, favor to us. God, we would be so thankful to be used to exalt your name in the world and to make your name famous uh, as we humbly submit ourselves to you. We pray you would use us to these great ends in Christ's name. Amen. John Newton, the author of the song Amazing Grace, he was more known in his day for his wise pastoral counsel than for his hymn writing. In one letter that he wrote to a friend, he describes his familiarity with his own indwelling sin. Listen to the way that this godly, wise shepherd describes indwelling sin. He says, I would not be the sport and prey of wild, vain, foolish, and worse imaginations. But this evil is present with me. My heart is like a highway, like a city without walls or gates. Nothing is so false, so frivolous, so absurd, so impossible, or so horrid, but it can obtain access. And that at any time or in any place. Neither the study, the pulpit, or even the Lord's table exempt me from their intrusion. I sometimes compare my words to the treble of an instrument, which my thoughts accompany with a kind of bass or anti-bass, in which every rule or of harmony is broken. Every possible combination of discord and confusion is introduced, utterly inconsistent with and contrary to the intended melody. But if this awful effect of heart depravity cannot be wholly avoided in the present state of human nature, yet at least I would not allow and indulge it, yet this I find I do. In defiance of my best judgment and best wishes, 
I find something within me which cherishes and cleaves to those evils from which I ought to start and flee as I should if a toad or a serpent was put in my food or in my bed. Ah, how vile must the heart, at least my heart, be that can hold a parley with such abominations when I so well know their nature and their tendency. Surely he who finds himself capable of this may without the least affectation of humility, however fair his outward conduct appears, subscribe himself less than the least of all saints and of sinners the very chief. That's a description of a man who is very aware of his remaining sin. The Christian who has never felt what Newton is describing hasn't been saved very long. This is the experience, the common experience of every Christian because for his own reasons, God has seen fit to leave us in a mixed condition, a state that now includes both good and evil, righteousness and sin. Now, we are far better than we once were, for sure. We were only always thoroughly sinful. But we're also still far from what we will be, which is sinless, pure, and as perfect as Christ himself. So now, while we're in this mixed condition, this in-between state, it would encourage us this morning to consider why God has permitted this ongoing battle with sin. We know that one day God will perfect us. That's still coming. And so it's not as if he's currently unable to accomplish complete sanctification in us. He could do that, and yet he's chosen not to. So why has God allowed this? Why has he permitted sin to continue dwelling in us and clinging so closely to us even after salvation has taken place? We need to understand some reasons that God has providentially permitted this to be the case. Understanding why God has permitted this to be the case will only strengthen our fight against sin and increase our hope in the midst of the battle. So that's our goal this morning to strengthen our fight against sin and increase our hope in the midst of fighting against it. The title of today's Equipping Our Lesson is Advantages from Remaining Sin. Advantages from Remaining Sin. And I've taken that title from one of John Newton's letters. Uh, That title may be confusing at first, may be shocking uh, or surprising at first to think what advantages could, could there possibly be from remaining sin? And how has anyone benefited from the sin that remains in me? Uh, And it's understanding why that may be shocking at first, but it doesn't take long to consider what might God be doing in permitting sin to remain in us before you start to even think of some answers for yourself. Just to name a few 
reasons that we won't go into greater detail today about. A few reasons why sin remaining in the believer may be advantageous in God's plan. Well, Satan is more greatly vexed by this fact, by this reality. As the accuser repeatedly accuses the brethren when they sin, God continually disregards those accusations because of Christ's blood and what he's accomplished in us. Also, the world witnesses sanctification. The world witnesses sanctification. This would not be the case if God saved us and then instantaneously completed our sanctification. And so rather than only evil or only perfect people on earth, God has ensured that the world sees an imperfect but increasingly righteous group of people in his church, in his children. In addition to this, unbelievers are made more accountable by the fact that sin remains in us and we are sanctified in increments. In a world that believes that fundamentally change is not possible, whatever you are naturally is what you should be, is what you're bound to be. Well, sanctification becomes proof of the opposite, that that's not true. And so as God changes his people incrementally, this proves that change is actually possible, that God's grace is powerful to produce a changed life. The world gets to witness that by virtue of seeing imperfect but increasingly righteous people. And believers are encouraged. Believers are encouraged. As we stumble and persevere and grow, that process that God is taking us through in sanctification becomes an encouragement to other believers to follow that path that we've walked and to persevere themselves as well as to put off sin and put on righteousness by faith. We become an encouragement even in our sanctification. Those advantages would be uh, worthy of, of greater unpacking, more study. Um, perhaps you can even add to that list on your own. These are excellent benefits that just prove the wisdom of God to leave us in this current mixed condition, even after our conversion. Not focusing on those, but this morning I want to just focus on only two advantages from remaining sin. Two advantages from remaining sin. Uh, advantage number one that we'll consider this morning is that the heinous nature of sin is exposed. The heinous nature of sin is exposed in this. And the second advantage is that the glorious character of God is revealed. The glorious character of God is revealed. In the fact that God has permitted ongoing sin, has put us in a battle with sin, and has refused to sanctify us completely, these two things are accomplished, all to the glory of God. And so these are worthy of our consideration. For the first advantage, the heinous nature of sin is exposed. Just consider that in this, by virtue of having to fight and struggle and strive against sin, we get to see the nature of sin in its very sinfulness. 
we get to behold that sin is sinful. Turn to Ephesians 1. God has accomplished marvelous, almost unbelievable things in saving us. Almost unbelievable. If it wasn't true, it wouldn't be believable. The things that God has accomplished in us and for us are so astonishing. Ephesians 1 lays out many of these blessings. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, have also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, again, to the praise of his glory. Those are astonishing blessings by virtue of God's kindness to us in Christ. And to think that still we would sin against such a kind God. That highlights the sinfulness of sin. That those who have received such lavish undeserved kindness would continue to sin against God. It's one thing to be slandered by an enemy. It's another thing to be betrayed by a beloved family member. That's an even greater offense. And so that being what happens when we sin against God, not against an enemy, but against the one who has shown us more kindness than any other, we can see in that sin's sinfulness being highlighted. That would not be possible. That was not possible to understand the degree of the sinfulness of sin 
prior to our conversion. And so only after conversion, if sin occurs after we've been saved by God and after he's shown us that kindness, can we then see the heinous nature of sin. Not only do we see that sin is sinful, but we see that sin is abhorrent. When we feel the effects of sin, when we see sin for what it is and what we've been committing, then we learn to feel the same way about sin as God does. Just look at Proverbs 6, this list of things that God hates. Although this is most evident in the fool who has rejected God's saving wisdom to him, has rejected a fear of the Lord in total, these things that Solomon writes that God hates that are an abomination to Yahweh, the believer still, to some degree, can practice them, still sees them evident in his life. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are things that are abominable to God. They are hated by him. And each of these things, you can find specific instances in Scripture of believers already saved by God who have practiced these very things or have committed them, rather. Not perhaps a sign of ongoing sin in their lives, but to fall into these sins, to commit them in an instant, in a moment, in a season, You can find examples of these things throughout Scripture. And so one thing that we learn about the nature of sin is how worthy it is of our greatest hatred. We learn to feel the same way about sin that God himself does. Also, by virtue of sin remaining in the believer after salvation, we learn to see that sin is burdensome. Sin is burdensome. You felt this, haven't you? To find yourself committing, even in your best moments, some sin that you tried really hard to avoid, and you've just felt the burden that sin is to you. As you've seen the effects of sin in your own life and in others, the grief that's produced by it, you feel the burden that sin is. This is something that's only possible post-conversion, Ongoing sin remaining in the life of the believer. When we feel the burden of sin, we also learn to feel the lightness of Christ's yoke, the goodness of God's authority in our lives. Jesus, in Matthew 11, verse 30, highlights those two things side by side. The burden of failing at keeping his law and with a reminder of that comes the reminder of the lightness, the ease of his own authority. Matthew chapter 11, 
verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God's burden is not burdensome. It's light. Sin is not that way. Sin is burdensome. Sin wearies the believer. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119 cries out to God. He says, uh, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. He desires to be a student under God's tutelage because his commandments are good to him. His statutes are a joy. And so when we're confronted with our sin and its burdensome nature, we learn to appreciate the superiority, the goodness of God's own authority. We also learn uh, in, in learning the nature of sin and seeing the heinous nature of sin exposed, how unrelenting sin is. Sin is unrelenting. Even though the power of sin over us has been removed, it still maintains some semblance of power in our lives. How is that? Sin is just unrelenting. It's unrelenting in its hold on us, just as Ruth's commitment to Naomi was best seen after Naomi tried to leave her. So sins hold on us. Its commitment to cling to us is best seen after we try to leave it, after we're committed to putting it away. You just see the power of sin still clinging so closely. And also not only in its hold on us, but in its pursuit of us. Uh, sin is unrelenting in its pursuit of us. Scripture shows us that sin makes even good men fall greatly. Right? Look at the best saints in Scripture and which of them is without fault. Which of them is without flaw. Sin still pursues even the best of us. Adam falls from perfection. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Peter, Paul, all of them great saints by God, you know, God's testimony of them is that, and yet they still fall prey to sin. And so in that, we have an appreciation. We learn to have an appreciation for the unrelenting and still powerful nature of sin. With that, thankfully, uh, we're also reminded of sin's impotence. It's impotent in our lives. It's impotent to continue at full strength in us, and sin is impotent to ultimately condemn us. Praise God for that reality. We learn that by virtue of having sin still present in our lives. Although sin remains in us, it does not remain at full strength. Its power in us is practically waning. And we can see that as God incrementally sanctifies us. The waning power of sin should be evident, and that becomes an encouragement to press on. 
the power of sin will continue to wane until finally sin's very presence is removed from us or us from it. And even as sin continues, as we continue to find ourselves at various times prone to sin, we're reminded of what Paul reminds us of in Romans 8, that we are still uncondemnable. Even though sins may multiply in our lives, we still remain uncondemnable. Just to remind you, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a done deal in God's mind, our ultimate salvation and glorification. This is why he can say from the outset of Romans 8, there is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Despite their continued battle with sin, there is no condemnation. And so the power of sin still does not accomplish what it would apart from Christ in our lives to ultimately result at a condemnation before God, judicial condemnation. It is unable to accomplish that. Furthermore, we see the unchanging nature of sin. It's one thing to see the nature of sin at work in an unbeliever, but then even as a believer, although our relationship to sin has changed, sin's nature has not changed for us. And so still, as believers, sin is equally deadly, equally ruinous, equally sinful, and still and always equally against God. We can see those things before and after conversion. And then just finally to mention the unprofitable nature of sin. Sin still, even in the life of a, of a believer, remains equally unprofitable, not beneficial. Paul says that in Romans 6, reminds the Romans of this truth. Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Still. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord so sin remains today still unprofitable to the believer as unprofitable today as it was before conversion we would not know that truth if we did not still have to war against sin this is a good question that paul asks in verse 21 for believers to answer regarding ongoing indwelling sin. It's a strong deterrent to put off sins that we continue to struggle with. 
just ask yourself, how beneficial is this? Or as Paul says it, what benefit is it? Today, what benefit am I deriving by committing this sin? And reason with your own soul to not commit it. Reason with yourself that this is completely unprofitable, not beneficial in the least, and so we would do well to obey the Lord in this moment. This is just one benefit of considering remaining sin in us. One advantage. The second advantage is even better to consider. And this has to do with God himself. It's the view that we get of God by virtue of his permitting sin to remain in us. God benefits ultimately by virtue of allowing sin to remain in us. Newton, in that letter, The Advantages of Remaining Sin, mentions this, that if it were not profitable for God to permit sin to remain in us, then he would not allow it. So the mere fact that God is sovereign over all things and permits this should be enough to convince us that this is best currently. Although sin is never good, we don't want to confuse that. Sin is never good, always sinful, always against God and hated by God. Yet the fact that God remains or allows us to remain in this mixed condition, that is a better plan than what we might desire for ourselves. And so advantage number two is simply this, the glorious character of God is revealed. The glorious character of God is revealed by virtue of us having to fight with sin, being sanctified in increments instead of completely in a moment. To mention one aspect of the glorious character of God that gets revealed in this reality is God's holiness. God's holiness is revealed, and and not just his holiness, but the greatness of God's holiness. The glory of God's holiness is revealed in this. For starters, we recognize that God is not like us. He is categorically different. Even after salvation, even after being made like God in salvation, after God has made a share in some way in his divine nature, we are still so far from him. How great is God's holiness compared to ours? The best that we can muster, the most holy that we can be, still when we compare it with the holiness of God, there really is no comparison. We would not know that fact if God did not permit sin to continue in us. We also get to see the sinlessness of Jesus, it's one thing to consider God's, God in his holiness as he exists in heaven, completely set apart from sin and exalted above the heavens. It's another thing for God to become man, experience everything that we experience by way of temptation, and yet to never sin in his motivations, in his desires, 
in his thoughts, in his words, in his deeds, completely impeccable. That is what Christ was. As a man, he was those things. So we get a different appreciation even for Jesus' sinlessness. Just turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. The one who sins so grievously against the Lord knows the sinlessness of Christ. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you or leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. In the moments when it was most difficult, temptation would have been the greatest to distrust God, to exercise his own will, to not suffer in a human sense. Christ remained sinless. He committed no sin, Peter says in verse 22, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Those very things for which he was being accused could not be found in him. And even when being reviled, he did not return insult for insult. Jesus' sinlessness, contrary to our sinfulness, is demonstrated. That's highlighted in our remaining in sin, uh, in a, a mixed condition. And then not only is God's holiness and Jesus' sinlessness highlighted in this, but the perfection of God's very standard in the law for us is highlighted. Uh, As we continue to fight against sin, that's a continual reminder of the standard, the high standard of God in his law for us. His own standard of holiness for us is absolute perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48. And so the righteousness of his law is better understood when we have to strive to reach it. The psalmist, again, in Psalm 119, reminds us of this fact. Psalm 119, verse 1, from the outset of the psalm. How is a blameless way accomplished? He tells us. How blessed are those whose way is blameless who do this, walk in the law of Yahweh. A blameless way is accomplished by walking in Yahweh's law. And so we're reminded of God's own standard. The problem is never in the standard. 
the reason we sin is never because the standard's too high. That's always on, on us. The fault is always to be laid at our feet. Why we sin. The law is only and always has been good. Not only do we uh, get to see the glory of God's holiness revealed, but also God's love. The glory of God's love is revealed. John Newton said, said this, The unchangeableness of the Lord's love and the riches of his mercy are likewise more illustrated by the multiplied pardons he bestows upon his people than if they needed no forgiveness at all. Hosea's love for Gomer was best illustrated, was best seen after he continued to love her, after her adultery. It was after she left him that you could see Hosea being an illustration of God's own love and commitment to Israel. And the same is true of the believer. The same God who loved us to save us is the same God who continues to love us despite our ongoing sin against him. Just to remind you, the love of God is, was evident in the cross. Romans 5, 6 says this, in our own salvation. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If God's love was so greatly demonstrated in the cross, in his commitment to save us through Christ's blood, then certainly after that has taken place, it can't be less evident. God's love only gets accentuated by continuing to love us despite our continuing to sin against him at times. In a similar way, to God's holiness and love being demonstrated, God's power is also evident. God's power is also evident. Consider again what, what Newton says in the advantages from remaining sin. He says, The gracious purposes to which the Lord makes the sense and feeling of our depravity subservient are, multi, are manifold. Hereby his own power, wisdom, faithfulness, and love are more signally displayed. His power in maintaining his own work in the midst of so much opposition, like a spark burning in the water or a bush unconsumed in the flames. When sin is multiplied and God still sustains, maintains, preserves the salvation of the believer, it accentuates the power of God. He mentions this. In the example of bush being unconsumed in the flames, just go back to Exodus 3. That's where he's drawing that analogy from. Exodus 3, verse 
a burning bush is really nothing to marvel at. Why was Moses impressed and compelled to turn aside when God had appeared in the bush? Exodus 3 tells us, look at verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. That's not impressive yet. But it goes on to say, yet the bush was not consumed. So at that point, where the bush is burning and yet not consumed, verse 3 says, Moses says, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burnt up. That's a good parallel by way of illustration that really what's astonishing, what's worthy of our awe and amazement is that God maintains the believer in the midst of his sinful state. That even while he's striving against against sin, experiencing some successes and still continued failure at times, God remains committed and sustains the believer even in the midst of that. It's, again, by way of illustration, similar to God uh, succeeding through Gideon's small army where because the army is dwindled down to so few and the enemies are multiplied that many more times, that makes the victory of the battle that much more amazing. And it's similar in the life of a, of a believer. God's sustaining work in our lives amidst so many sins is truly amazing. And this only gets highlighted when you consider, um, as we have been uh, for multiple lessons in this series, really what's at the heart of sin when it's committed. At the heart of one single sin, you just trace that out all of the various ways that it doesn't believe God, it brings reproach on God's character, accuses God of imperfection and injustice. And when we start to unpack really what is at the heart of every single sin, then you can see how amazing God's power really is to sustain us, to remain committed to us in the midst of our sin. Um, God's omnipotence is displayed even in his mercy, uh, the strength of his love, the strength of his faithfulness, the unfailing nature of his immutability and unchangeableness. Even all of God's attributes get highlighted as powerful, as omnipotent, because they continue to be exercised toward us despite our continued sin. Considering this should only increase our love and the strength of our worship of God. Consider, to God's wisdom, how this is revealed. In permitting this mixed condition, God's wisdom is greatly revealed. 
in the end, we will see that this was better by far. Would you allow yourself to remain struggling with sin? You've had that thought already that, God, just finish this. Sanctify me completely already. Stop making me, letting me struggle with this sin. If it were up to us, we would have completed our sanctification already. And God has wisely determined something else. And so in the end, we will see the wisdom of God's plan for us. And so the glory that God receives from our striving against sin, we will see is much greater than if he completed our sanctification today. God's wisdom, the glory of God's wisdom is also evident in our submission to his word. Just think when you submit to God's word and he uses his wise words to sanctify you, then that proves the sanctifying effects of God's wisdom to sanctify us by another degree of glory through his wise words. Proverbs 3, verse 5, you probably know it well, reminds us of this. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The only way to be sanctified is to distrust self and trust entirely in God's own wisdom. To distrust your own opinions, to charge your own thoughts with folly, and to ascribe all the glory of wisdom to God alone. Sanctification doesn't come any other way on God's terms. And so whenever the believer is genuinely sanctified, that becomes another testimony to the superiority and the glory of God's wisdom that can sanctify. If we were glorified the moment we were converted, that would not be evident. Every successful Battle against sin in the Christian life is due solely to God's wisdom. Jesus says this. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with that statement. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. Hearing and obedience coupled together, that is wisdom. That highlights the wisdom of Christ's own commandments. And again, just we looked at this recently in Proverbs 2. This also highlights the wisdom of God in preserving us to the end. Look again at Proverbs 20, or excuse me, verse 20 in chapter 2. Why heed humbly and diligently heed God's wisdom? Solomon says, so that you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit 
the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. The only way to walk in the way of the good, to keep to the paths of the righteous, so that we are upright, have integrity, and are not wicked and treacherous, is by humbly heeding God's wisdom. And so whoever inherits the kingdom one day, whoever finally enters into the kingdom, the believer, will be a testimony to God's preserving wisdom, his, the ability of his wisdom to preserve us, to make us heed to the paths of the righteous and eventually inherit the kingdom. God's wisdom is going to be on display in that way. You can add to all of these things numerous other attributes of God, like his grace, mercy, patience, sufficiency, knowledge, faithfulness. All of these things get highlighted in our ongoing battle against sin. As a qualification on all that's been said thus far this morning, these attributes are not revealed by way of our participation when we fail in a fight against sin ultimately. You understand that these, everything we've been saying, these advantages are not a comfort to the one who habitually practices sin. That should be a warning. No one should take comfort to continue in sin because of these advantages. That would be a completely wrong application of everything that you've heard this morning. You do not participate with God in never being sanctified, in running the opposite direction of sanctification. These are advantages, promises to God's slave of things that God is accomplishing in them when they play the part of the slave of God. When they actively work with God to submit to his law. Consider what Thomas Watson says about how a, ba- a, a victory over sin, uh, even as the battle rages on in the believer's life, God's grace is highlighted. He simply says, if I say I am a sinner in confessing my sin, that's a part of genuine repentance. When genuine repentance and sanctification is taking place, he says in a confession, if I say that I am a sinner, how precious will Christ's blood be to me? God's grace becomes sweeter to the believer when he genuinely repents. That is what we should be after, not to highlight God's grace in continuing in sin. Just, con- just consider what Paul writes in Romans 5, back to the book of Romans, again, useful to learning these lessons. Just the thought that he articulates in Romans 5, verse 20, 
the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever we get a glimpse of the abounding nature of sin, the increasing nature of sin in our lives, that becomes an occasion as God sanctifies us away from the sin to also see the abounding nature of God's grace. If we didn't have a good view of sin, as we see the high standard of God's law and how often we fall short of that, even when we are striving to reach God's high standard in the law, we get an opportunity in that to see just how abundant God's grace is toward us. And so God's grace is revealed, the glorious nature, the greatness of God's grace in the fact that he continues uh, to, sanctify, to, to sanctify us, to, to forgive us despite multiplied sins. God's patience, again, is on display. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, that it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he goes on to say that he essentially becomes an example for Christ to display his perfect patience in him by being the chief of sinners and still saving Paul. The greatness of God's patience is displayed. God's own sufficiency is displayed, is revealed in this fact. This was true with Job. When Job was given all of these earthly blessings by God, what did Satan say? God, uh, Satan called into account God's own sufficiency, that God wouldn't be enough without the earthly blessings. And so what does God do? He hands Job over to Satan to take everything from him except his own life. Job has to uh, fall and falter in his endurance. And God, on the other side of that, proves that he is sufficient by sustaining Job through that trial. So the glory of God's own self-sufficiency is, is evident. And then finally, just to mention God's own faithfulness. God's faithfulness to us is completely astonishing. Uh, this was like Israel in the wilderness. Uh, certainly God's commitment to them was seen in keeping his promise to Abraham from Genesis 14 to bring them into Egypt, permit them to be enslaved and still remain after that 400 something years committed to them. You can see God's faithfulness in that. But you, you see it more after they've rebelled against him, received the law in Exodus 19, heard Moses repeat the law for them, heard Moses write down and then read the law to them. And then Exodus 32, they build the golden calf. And God doesn't obliterate them. What does he do? He forgives. He permits them to continue as a nation. That's an 
even better example of God's faithfulness to Israel. And even one day, despite now thousands of years of hard-heartedness against God, his faithfulness has been evident. And one day when he finally restores Israel, saves all of Israel from the least to the greatest, fulfills his promises that have been lingering, outstanding since, then his faithfulness will be put on display in a whole new way. Similarly, for the believer, when, when God finally saves us, sanctifies us completely, demonstrating that his commitment has not wavered to us despite ongoing sin and failures, then his faithfulness will be put on display in a marvelous way. I want to close with this, this quote from John Newton. Uh, it's the same way he closed that letter by the title, The Advantages from Remaining Sin. And he says this, The knowledge of my full and free forgiveness of thy innumerable backslidings and transgressions shall make thee ashamed and silence the unruly workings of thine heart. Thou shalt open thy mouth and praise, but thou shalt no more boast in thyself or censure others. In these respects, we are exceedingly prone to speak unadvisedly with our lips. But a sense of great unworthiness and of much forgiveness checks these evils. Whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry, will not be positive and rash, will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there be a difference, it is grace that has made it, and that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. And under all trials and afflictions, he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. These are some of the advantages and good fruits which the Lord enables us to obtain from that bitter root indwelling sin. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these truths. I pray that this is an encouragement to put off sin even as we behold your glory in all of the ways that you intend for us. Make this have the sanctifying effects in our lives that you intend for us, that would most glorify you in the world. We pray in all these things in Christ's name. Amen.